This morning we are going to continue in a sermon series. It is a Christmas sermon series called The Nightmare Before Christmas. We're focusing on the struggles of God's people as they have been chosen as God's people of Israel way back in Genesis and the, the struggles that God's people went through on their way to the Christmas story. We've seen a few glimpses of Israel's history and the torment and the nightmares that they had gone through due to their disobedience to God's direction for their lives. In the Old Testament, we start in the book of Genesis and it gives us details about how the universe was created. It gives us details about the history Obedience and Judah's disregard, and we hear about justice, and we hear about God's love, his unfailing love. And all of that leads to Christmas. This morning, we're going to be in the very last book of the Old Testament. If you would turn with me to Malachi chapter 1, as you're turning through your Bible, if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. Back up a few pages and you'll be in the book of Malachi. Now, I understand that what we would call Christmas Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas, that you come to church expecting to hear a sermon that has to do with an innkeeper, or maybe a donkey, or a baby, or hay, or a shepherd, or angels, and camels, and wise men, and gifts. But we can't get to Bethlehem without recognizing the nightmare that led to the reason for Bethlehem. I want to set the scene for you. Over the last couple of weeks, we were there and we saw the northern kingdom of Israel. We saw when they were taken over by the Assyrian army, and they were taken off to captivity, and they never returned. And then 120 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah, due to their disobedience, they are overtaken and they are corrected and disciplined and they are taken by the Babylonians to Babylon for 70 years. And God's people being taken out of their world and being put into a, another culture, you would recognize that God's people are going to somewhat lose their culture now. They're going to be in a place where they're going to have to learn a different language. They're going to eat different foods. They're going to become part of the Babylonian culture. And some of what they know is going to be gone. Seventy years as captives in another land is the time that it was from the time that they were taken captive to the time that they were released and some of them were allowed to go home, to go back to Jerusalem. Under the lead of the king of Persia, now in charge of the exiled Jews, a handful of them returned to their homeland of Jerusalem and Judah, but it was never the same. I don't think God wanted it to be the same. He actually had plans. We start to see prophets come into the come into play now. We see Ezra and Nehemiah, and they come, and there is this push 
to get back into Jerusalem and to rebuild the city walls and to rebuild the, the temple. But one would think, after being disciplined as a people, after being banished to another land, that the people would learn their lesson, that the people would learn what it is that God expects from them, and the people would come back around. You've got to remember that many of the people who returned to Jerusalem after the exile may not have been the same people who were marched across the desert with a sword in their back as they were being taken captive 70 years before. A lot of these people that are coming back now are of a different generation. They grew up in Babylon. That's all they know is a totally different culture. They, have, they don't have Jewish culture that is ingrained in their, in their blood. They have the culture of the, the heathen, polytheistic Babylonians. It's just a group of people now who worship many, many, many different gods. Now they've got to go back to a land. And a lot of the people going back don't really know what it was that their ancestors left. This morning... We're going to hear from the very last prophet that God sent to his people as they came back to the land of Judah. There wasn't a lot of people back in Judah. Maybe 50,000 people came back. There's a couple of million Jews in Babylon still. Malachi is honestly a literary genius. In the four chapters that he writes, he writes this dialogue between God and his people. And we see both sides of this conversation. We hear the, the, the side of the Israelites and we hear the side of God. And the people are trying to defend themselves and in, in defend their actions before their creator. And God calls them out on the rug in this book. He doesn't hold back any punches on his side of the conversation. Why is it so important today that we look at this book on Christmas Sunday, that we look at Malachi? It's because these are the last words that God is going to say to Israel for 400 years. It's the last time that God is going to speak into their culture. It's the last time that God is going to speak to his chosen people. It's the last time that he is going to talk to their faith, talk to their religion. They didn't know it at the time that Malachi speaks to them. But God would never speak to them again, would never talk to them through a prophet. I wonder if you could relate to this. Maybe you've been so mad at somebody in your life that you, you continually have arguments with somebody. Every phone call you argue, every, every Christmas you argue, every Thanksgiving when you get together at the in-laws, you and your sister-in-law, whoever it happens to be, you argue. Every time you come together for kids' birthdays, you argue. And you try and explain yourself peacefully to the other person, but they just, they just don't get it. They won't listen. It doesn't matter what you do, it just seems like the two of you cannot get along. And eventually, one of the two of you will say this. You'll say, you know what? I can't. I can't. I can't do it anymore. I love them, but I can't. And then what happens? What happens when somebody says, you know what? I can't. 
You realize that this continual back and forth of arguing with this person, that it's doing more damage to your heart, it's doing more harm than good, but you realize, you know what? I can love this person from a distance. I can love them safely from here and still have nothing to do with them. It's almost as if God, if he had disciplined his his people and then when they got their freedom back, when they came back to the land, they continued to ridicule God. They continued to cheat on God. They continued to desecrate the temple. And it's as if God said, I'm out. I love you. I just can't talk to you anymore. The book of Malachi gives us God's last words to his people. Doesn't really sound like a very cheerful Christmas message at church, does it? Well, it's kind of one of the nightmares. And that's what we're studying this Christmas season. I want you to come with me to Malachi. We are in chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse number 1. It says, this is the message. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. We're going to get this up on your screen in just a second, and you can follow along. There you go. I have always loved you, says the Lord, but you retort, really? How have you loved us? And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau and devastated his hill country. This text seems a bit deep, and we're going to dive into it in just a moment. But what God is saying, he is saying, I have loved you to his people. And they respond back, they say, how have you loved us? Really? Really, God, you love us? We're in poverty, we're under control of a foreign leader, and you say you love us? How do you love us? Look around. You have to remember, when they came back from captivity, they were expecting the Messiah to come. They were expecting a Savior to come and to pull them out of this oppression that they had been in. But it didn't happen. So they're questioning God's love. And actually, they're making God defend himself. And God does. And God gives them this example. He says, all the way back in Genesis, he says, when Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob, Jacob later was given the name Israel. And God says, I loved Jacob. I chose him to be the father of my people. Esau, who is also called Edom, he's not the one I chose. As a matter of fact, he was the first one, but he's not the one that I chose. I chose Jacob. Hundreds of years after Jacob and, and Esau had died, the Israelites and the Edomites became bitter enemies of each other. Started with the brothers one of the most famous men in the Bible from the tribe of the Edomites is a man by the name of King Herod. And we see the line of Herod in the Christmas story 400 years after this book of Malachi. The Edomites were a group that would actually aid Israel's enemies to go up against them. And this is what God says, I chose you. 
God goes all the way back to, be, to the beginning of his nation to explain his love for his people. I wonder if as a parent, any of your kids have ever asked you this. I have a feeling that they probably have. Mom, who do you love more? Right? You've heard that. Mom, between me and my sister, me and my brother, which one of us do you love more? And you say this, you say this, I love all my kids the same, right? Or you say something like this, I love all my kids the same, I just love all of my kids different. If Esau would have asked God, hey God, who do you love more, me or Jacob? God is not going to, he's not going to sugarcoat this at all. He's going to tell the truth. Esau, 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 I thought you knew this. Why are you asking me? You know I love your brother more. Why? Why are you even asking me this? I love your brother more. You should know that. Imagine telling your kids, one of your kids, yeah, I, I do. I, I love your brother a lot more than you. Sorry, it's just the way it is. Like, that's what God is say, saying. He's literally saying to Esau. He, but Jacob, the father of God's nation, chosen. And God's saying, my love for you is unconditional. And you can see through the generations that even though you've neglected me, even though you've, you've cheated on me with other gods, he says, I could have chosen anyone to be the leader and to be the father of my nation, but I chose Jacob. I chose you. The people were only looking at what they had lost since they went into captivity. They were looking at how weak their nation was, and they were just saying, you know, God, God doesn't love us. Look around. Look around here. There's no way God could love us. It should be obvious to you and I that it's not up to us to decide for God what His blessings are for us. God is always at work, but He's always at work for His pleasure, not ours. It's for God's pleasure. I wonder if, I wonder if we have ever asked God, God, look around here. You say you love me? I don't see it. If, if you are within reach of my voice, either in this room or online somewhere, I want you to know something. I want you to know this. Whether you are saved and born again or not, God chose you. What would God tell us right now if we were to say, God, look around at my life. Look around. How can you say that you love me? I've lost family members. My, my kids can't go to school. My, people in my house have lost jobs. My home is full of aggression and depression. My bills are high. My income is low. I watch news and, and no good things are happening. How is it that you love us, God? And I wonder if God would say to us, I wonder if you would point back, just like he did here, would point back to time to a time so long ago and ask us to remember something that he did for us. Maybe like a baby in a stable. Maybe God would point there and say, I chose you.
I did this for you. One of the saddest points of the conversation that Malachi is recording for us in his book is this conversation with God and the priests. God actually is going to call out the priests, the religious leaders. They're supposed to be examples. The religious leaders are examples. Even in our day and age, they are examples. They might not be a good example, but they are examples. I'm in Malachi chapter 1. I'm in verse number 6. The Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and the respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? Well, you've shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. And then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? God says, you defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifice, is it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Go ahead. Beg God to be merciful for you. But when you bring that kind of an offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Asked the Lord of heaven's armies. See, this is sad because, because the priests were an example for the people. They're supposed to bring good sacrifices, the best, the firstborn of their herds. This isn't a sermon about tithes. This isn't a sermon about offerings. But God specifically said, I want you to bring your first fruits. I want you to bring your best. The people were bringing... They're castaways. They were bringing their leftovers. They were literally bringing to God things that they don't want. I want you to imagine that yard sale that you had a couple of years ago in the spring. You know what happens when you get to the end of your yard sale and you still have stuff out on your driveway? And you take a few boxes and you put all this stuff in the boxes and you take it down to the Salvation Army or you, you take it down to, um, to another charity and you drop it off and you don't eat it, that's the stuff that you don't really want. Imagine that being your offering to God. It's just stuff. That's what the priests were giving. I don't want you to think about this idea of, of giving God. We've, we've talked about leftovers, and we've talked about first fruits. Here it would be literally as if we were giving God a wad of coin that's like covered up in gum. It's like disgusting, right? We don't even want to touch it with our own hands. They were giving God possessions that they couldn't even give to the governor. They couldn't even use this for taxes. And that's what they were giving to God. You've got to remember that at this moment, God is... He is talking to his people and saying, this is how I have helped you. I have sent leaders. I have sent prophets. I have trained Levites. I gave Moses written word on, on tablets. And he says, but it's not, it's not working. From the moment that God first started to bring his people closer to him, they started complaining. They complained out in the desert. 
They complained to Moses. They let their worldly desires defile them as a nation. They didn't obey the judges. And God punished them to exile and they came back still despising God. So in Malachi chapter 3, God reveals that he's going to begin an entirely new tactic. Watch this. Because this is why we are studying the book of Malachi on Christmas Sunday. Because I want you to see Christmas in the Old Testament right here. Come to Malachi chapter 3 with me. We're in Malachi chapter 3, verse number 1. Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. In that culture, if a king were to go into a different territory, into a different land, he would send messengers, he would send workers ahead of him so that they could clear out all of the obstacles that might be in the way. There weren't a whole lot of paved roads. Matter of fact, no paved roads. So you would send people to get the logs off of the trails so that when the king comes through, it's all clean and there is a way to get to the destination. They made all the rough places smooth so that the king could travel easier. Look what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 5. Isaiah says this, Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountain and the hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see together the Lord has spoken. Both the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Malachi are talking about somebody who is going to come before the king and to make straight a way for the Lord. And the Lord will come to his temple and God says, then you will delight. The Lord will be revealed. The Messiah will come. See, this is God letting his people know that something bigger is coming. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not a word that is written on stone. It's not rules anymore. He's going a new direction here. The prophet Jeremiah tells us about this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse number 31. Jeremiah writes, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the one that I made with their ancestors when I took them out of, by my hand and I brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is a new covenant I will make with the people of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to, to, to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will already know me, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins." From the time of Malachi to the time that we hear from God again, the story picks up. There's 400 years that have passed. 
14 generations have come and gone, and God didn't speak to his people. Before God went silent for this 400 years, God told the people what to look for. He gave them what they needed to know. He told them there was going to be a sign. And this is how you're going to know that it's time. This is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. 400 years after that last word of the Old Testament was written, now the time is right. Everything has been put into place. So much has happened in these 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So much has happened in the world to get things ready. We're going to study next week in a message that I've entitled The Blank Page. Next Sunday, we're going to look at these 400 years. God was silent, but God wasn't just sitting around doing nothing. No, he was working. It's amazing what God did in these 400 years. And then when the time was right, we read this out of Matthew chapter 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by, the, by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So just as the prophets said, God sent his messenger to make way and clear the path. John the Baptist was prophesied about hundreds of years before he was born and before Jesus was born as the one who was going to come and prepare the way for the Lord and make the paths straight. See, 400 years of silence was a nightmare before Christmas. This is God's people who don't have, don't have kings, don't have prophets, don't have judges, don't have anyone giving them God's word. And God's not talking right now. This is a nightmare before Christmas. But God says, he says, hey, I'm not done. Just because you don't see what I'm doing, it doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. I'm moving behind the scenes. I'm getting ready for Christmas. It took so much planning on God's part to literally get the stars aligned perfectly for Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse number 1, reads like this. And then it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This first census took place where Cornelius was governing Syria. And all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. 
Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth in Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to, to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. The Christmas story doesn't start at the beginning of the New Testament. The Christmas story starts so much further back. God's people lived through nightmares of oppression, of other world leaders conquering them, of being exiled to other nations, all because they weren't obedient to what God had planned for them. They weren't following God's rules for their lives. They continued to worship foreign gods. God says, okay, I'm going to go silent, and I'm going to go to work, and I'm going to bring forth the Messiah. This is what you should look for. Fourteen generations did not hear from God through a prophet. Fourteen generations. And then, Christmas. Then, a baby. Then, donkey, hay, innkeeper, angels, stars. It all had to be perfect. God had to do some work. He had to line up the stars to make everything perfect for Christmas. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you this morning. I want to thank you for the star. I want to thank you for Christmas. I want to thank you for I want to thank you for those who are here today, in-house and those who are here online. And Lord, I thank you for your son. Lord, this morning we're here on Christmas Sunday celebrating in a world that is full of, that's full of sales and sale prices and giving that we have distorted 
Lord, I pray that you will just shine a light on those words that you have written in our hearts. Lord, let that shine through. This Christmas, Lord, we pray that it will be you that is the focus of our celebration. That it will be you that is the focus of our Christmas morning. Lord, because we want to be your focus. When you look at us, we want you to see us looking right back at you. Lord, this morning, we simply praise you. We praise you for your good works and everything that you have done for us and for your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.